lean my loaded touring bicycle against the intricately carved handrail of Nanxiao, Southbridge, and feel the cool spray of the milky blue water thundering below. Closing my eyes, I can almost taste its glacial origin and the journey it took through the crags and falls of the alpine Min Valley to get here. It's a cloudy Saturday morning in Dujiangyan, a city of 320,000 people 60 kilometers northwest of Chengdu, and a smattering of tourists are wandering the bridge already. All eyes and cameras point upstream to Baopingko, bottleneck mouth, the 20-meter-wide, 80-meter-long split in the Yulei Mountains through which the river is gushing. While it looks natural, it was actually hacked open by workers using only hand tools and controlled fires over an eight-year period, starting in 256 BC. Along with flying sand weir and fish mouth levee, this waterway is part of the Dujiangyan irrigation system masterminded by the great hydrologist Li Bing. It provides a transport route and drinking water to the Chengdu Plain to this day. I take out a half-flattened sandwich out of my pannier and eat, savouring the atmosphere of epic history while trying to get as many calories into my body as possible. This is where the fertile plains meet the Tibetan Plateau, and all roads on from here are steep. Pedalling west through town, I feel a flicker of nervous excitement. It doesn't seem entirely normal to be cycling alone. Tamsin and I discovered bike touring together and tend to do it that way. But while we've been dying to get out of the city as a pack, the dog's training process is ongoing, so this month we've decided to set out on our own adventures. Steel shop shutters are clattering open in the crooked back streets as I trundle past, breathing deep to relish the cool, moist air. After a few labyrinthine twists, I reach the 250-metre-long Qingcheng Bridge and feel exhilaration, or is it vertigo, as the main wide body of Min River falls away beneath me. Across the valley, through the fog and drizzle, the dark green humps of Qingcheng mountain range emerge, among which the doctrine of Taoism was first written. I pedal hard towards the mountains, my gaze turned down to look through the rapidly flitting bars of the barrier to my right. The roiling currents, whirlpools, sprays of foam and jagged boulders are mesmerising, and I slow my pace to further appreciate this hydrological feat. Built by tens of thousands of workers placing long cylindrical pig baskets filled with rocks in the river, Li Bing's system it supplies irrigation channels with water during dry season and flushes it away during the rainy season. Through preventing silt buildup along the Min River, Du Yen is credited with transforming Chengdu into Qianfu Zhiguo, the land of abundance. It's the perfect example of feng shui, the art of studying the natural environment while harnessing the opposing forces of yin and yang. It's fair to say that priorities have shifted since the days of Li Bing's masterpiece. While massive rollouts of green infrastructure are attempting to reinsert nature back into urban environments, many modern developments along the Min River seem to fly in the face of that era of careful planning. While the list is long, none do this quite so dramatically as Ziping Pu, the 760-megawatt hydroelectricity dam looming just a few miles upriver. Despite being touted as a source of clean energy, the megaproject was always controversial. Campaigners railed against the risk of damaging both the ancient waterworks' ability to function as an effective irrigation and flood control system, harming the river ecology, and forcing the relocation of 40,000 residents from the 18 kilometer squared area flooded by the reservoir. 
It's possible that UNESCO stripped Dujiang Yen of its natural heritage status based on these factors alone. But most alarming of all was the newly amassed water body's close proximity to a seismic fault line. I consider heading north and repeating the visit we made to the reservoir last year, but it lies within Aba, Tibetan and Chiang Autonomous County. Due to a recent COVID outbreak in Shanghai, I must stay within Chengdu Municipality to avoid being pinged on my phone and having to quarantine when I get back. So I keep riding west, and the construction sites quickly fall away to be replaced by the first of the Chengcheng Mountains. Flanked on my right by a steep bank of larch and pine, I feel a deep calm descending, as if a pressure valve has been released. At a gravel car park, several cartoon-style panda statues are arranged in martial arts poses before a gigantic sign that reads Panda Valley. A few stationary coaches are releasing clusters of tourists, and as they walk nonchalantly towards the ticket booth, my mind goes back to Zipingpu Dam. At 14.28 on 12th of May 2008, just two years after the dam's completion, an 8.2 magnitude earthquake struck in the nearby town of Wanchuan. An estimated 90,000 people were killed, 374,000 were reported injured, and a potential 4.5 million people were made homeless. It was a truly catastrophic event which, although its causes remain shrouded in controversy, unified the nation as much as it traumatised it. The impact on nature was also dire, as the natural corridor in which 80% of China's giant pandas live was heavily fragmented by landslides. Unknown numbers of wild pandas, as well as several living within the Wolong Panda Centre, five miles from the epicentre, were injured or killed. While efforts to relocate, rescue and rehome human survivors of the disaster took precedence, the knock taken by China's most iconic threatened species was also high on the agenda. According to Edwin Schmidt and Shang Yuan, conservationists argued that only a massive effort to remove or limit human impact from this region, where 170,000 people still live, can help to establish corridors for fragmented panda groups to begin interacting. Turning their attention outwards to the new trend in biodiversity conservation described as rewilding, 10 years after the quake in 2017, the government created Giant Panda National Park, a vast protected area stretching across parts of Sichuan, Gansu and Ningxia provinces. Standing at the edge of Panda Valley, I'm sure that this particular breeding and research centre, as it's labelled on my map, plays a role within the broader context of reintegrating giant pandas into the Chinese landscape. However, I've seen photos online of tourists posing with subdued-looking bears and even handling cubs, and I have no desire to impose my presence on wild animals in this way. I ride on. Occasional slate-roofed wooden houses dot the road for the next mile or so as I climb steadily in altitude. A right turn takes me beneath a dense forest canopy quickly shutting out both sound and light, and the intense fog from a nearby wood-burning stove hangs in the air. I pedal hard, trying to get momentum on the suddenly steep incline, and quickly become exhausted, burnt out by a sprint my body wasn't ready for. Switching to a Sherpa-style zigzag pattern and dropping to the lowest gear, after some time I managed to fall into a rhythm. Through gaps between the dense bamboo clumps to my left, I see a deep valley, topped by a vista of irregular peaks creating a saw-like ridge. I assume it to be Qingcheng Ridge, 
the karst landscape of porous limestone, caves and sinkholes, which marks the border between Chengdu Municipality and Aberan Tibetan Chiang Autonomous County. Giant pandas once ranged throughout all of East Asia. In that heady hill-cycling state between agony and ecstasy, I wonder if the ridge was once the arena of their courtship rituals, in which females dragged their scent across miles of undergrowth, pursued by rival males that snarl, fight and sometimes kill one another to attain higher ground. Females often flee up trees and are held hostage for as long as a week by the victorious male, a process which it's believed may trigger the final stage of estrus. Cresting a pass and freewheeling downhill for a while, I'm struck by the challenge and reward that rewilding poses. To liberate pandas here would be to welcome them into the public consciousness, not as fluffy cartoon characters with stunted sex drives, but bears, powerful solitary omnivores who brave the Chinese winter, crack bamboo with their powerful jaws, and occasionally break into livestock pens and consume goats and sheep. Four or five kilometers pass in slow, grinding fashion, upward and around hairpin bends until I finally arrive at Longfeng village. The small township serves as a base camp for hikes up to the peak of Gong Mountain, named after General Gong Ming, the legendary sage and Taoist god of wealth. Sitting on a roadside patch of grass, I take out my stove and fix some noodles and coffee, preparing for the final climb along Sunlin Kangyang Lü Dao, Forest Health Greenway, a new cycle track encircling the mountain's protected core. This part of the village is largely comprised of squat concrete buildings built into the mountainside. Whatever damage it sustained during the earthquake is no longer visible, and a rustic restaurant is serving snacks and beer to a cheerful group of mountain bikers sitting outside. I zigzag and struggle up the hill alone for the final stretch, accompanied only by the sound of my own breath and a red-billed blue magpie that swoops to and fro in front of me. Businesses aren't excluded from this zone, but they are less frequent. As I climb, I pass occasional basic lodges positioned over mountain streams, drawing water for their kitchens via bamboo standpipes. An indeterminate amount of time later, and I must have passed the famous peak without noticing, as I'm freewheeling downhill with the wind chilling my sweat. Orchards of fruit trees, cabbage patches, village graveyards and Buddhist shrines pass by in a blur as I pump the brakes rapidly. On this side of the pass, the legacy of Wenchuan earthquake appears regularly in the form of sunken guesthouses, collapsed footbridges and miniature ghost towns, apparently intact but completely abandoned. I stop for a while beside a cracked swimming pool exploding with brambles and it looks as if nature is hurrying to claw back the space taken up by this out-of-place artifice. I'm reminded of George Monbiot's essay, Accidental Rewilding, in which he asserts that most of the rewilding that has taken place on Earth so far has happened at the expense of the human population. When nature has made them fight back into human territory, it's usually been the result of war, famine or other catastrophe, leading to an absence of humans. This has also been a consistent theme throughout Chinese history, as well as an important cautionary chapter in the story of Du Yen irrigation system. In their fascinating paper, Retreat of the Human, Edwin Schmidt and Shang Yuan retell the tumultuous bloody final years of the Ming Dynasty, in which war, famine and disease caused a rapid depopulation of the Chengdu Plain. When the essential practice of annual dredging, repairs and maintenance of Du Yen 
known as Suixiu, collapsed. In 1619, hundreds of miles of canals in Chengdu Prefecture began suffering a severe water deficiency. This made rice farming untenable, and the subsequent land abandonment led to huge swathes of farmland across Sichuan running wild. Terrifyingly for the survivors, this provided optimal habitat for tigers, who began making their way back into villages and towns. The fierce confrontation between the two species lasted several years, with deaths from tiger attacks a daily occurrence in the province. Previously unseen behaviours were recorded, such as climbing up buildings and stalking people from the rooftops, and even approaching and boarding boats by swimming. The situation was so dire that the Liaoli Waijuan, written by Han Guoxiang, records that half of Sichuan peoples died because of warfare. After this, half of the survivors died because of famine, and the other half of the survivors died because of tigers. The people cannot bear this suffering anymore. Many literati at the time saw the tiger attacks to be the result of moral failure, which would eventually cause the collapse of human civilization. One who clearly believed this to be the case was poet Shen Shunwei, who hid in an area occupied by the new Qing army after losing his father during a famine-induced riot. Sixteen autumns have passed since I left Chengdu. Who can help me cope with my myriad emotions? Chengdu has been occupied by wild grass for ages. Elk roam among the grain fields. God desires to obliterate the legacy of the Han Chinese Empire. But I alone am powerless to defend it from outside forces. Although in past and present a civilization's rise and fall is a common affair, I still cannot understand how such a thing could befall Sichuan. Lying in my tent, listening to the rapid-fire hoots of a collared owlet, I consider the paradox of wishing for a resurgence of wild nature, all the while celebrating Li Bing's achievement of subduing the destructive forces of the Min River. However, it's important to remember that seeking to make space for wild nature is not born out of contempt for civilization. On the contrary, it is based in an understanding of planetary boundaries that we must respect if civilization is to thrive. As I drift off to sleep, I hope that we are now entering an era in which rewilding takes place not as a result of catastrophe, but as the type of custodianship and care that Li Bing would be proud of. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe for free if you haven't already, so that you can receive stories like this direct to your inbox and never miss a post.